Today we gather around this epistle lesson from Galatians chapter 5. One last time, we've been in the middle of this sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. So hear these words again. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And now hear this lesson from the prophet Ezekiel from chapter 34. As for you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink the clean water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season, and there will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield fruit, and the ground will yield crops, and the people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of nations. It is then that they will know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God declares the Sovereign Lord. Please pray with me. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Self-control is our final facet of faithfulness in this summer sermon series. Somehow, it's hard to know exactly how to be faithful in this complicated world, and I think this sermon series has offered me, at least, and hopefully you, a chance to turn over in my hand this many-sided jewel that can be and is a lifelong relationship with God and neighbor and self. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control each offer us that dual gift of promise and struggle, of challenge and innate treasure. 
And while there's something natural and human about each of these facets of faithfulness, it does seem as if self-control is one of those that each of us wrestle with and experience in a heightened way. Self-control is a close cousin to self-discipline and is married to willpower. It's defined by that hyphen stuck there right in the middle, self and control partners in that internal, personal struggle to do the good that we wish we could do. Our understandings of self-control are influenced by the ancients. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, they understood self-control to be a virtue. So maybe it's no surprise that St. Paul would come to the same conclusion and put that on his list too. He spent his whole life swimming in the Greco-Roman worldview. In Greek philosophy, self-control is just good math. If you know something is going to cause more pleasure than pain, green light go. If it will cause more pain than pleasure, red light stop. No doubt about it. In order to control yourself, you need willpower, and there is a mental strain or a conscious effort required to resist temptation or master emotions. We talk about it now like this, we say, mind over matter. When there's a will, there's a way. Or as the music man says, use the think system. In 2010, research scientists published a 30-year study of the impact of self-control on individuals from childhood through to adulthood. And those with the highest measures of self-control had, and maybe this isn't surprising, better health as adults, lower obesity, fewer STDs, better financial stability, stable long-term relationships, and healthier teeth. <laughs> it takes serious self-control to floss. In another recent study, researchers used a scale to measure self-control in young adults. Self-control was the only virtue that predicted a college student's grade point average better than a roll of the dice. Self-control was a better indicator of grades than your IQ or your ACT scores, probably because self-control was what caused students to show up for class when mom wasn't there to tell you to wake up, finish your homework, or spend more time on your coursework. And it's no different in the working world. This research showed that those with higher self-control had more empathy and could consider things from other people's perspective, were more emotionally stable, less prone to depression or eating disorders or drinking problems or anger or aggressive behavior. So self-control is looking pretty good right now, and we haven't even gotten to our spiritual lives yet. But first, a story. In 1971, on a day filled with thick fog, John Francis, witnessed two oil tankers collide under the Golden Gate Bridge. Maybe you remember this happening. Half a million gallons of oil spilled into the San Francisco Bay, and it wasn't the first oil spill or the last, but John Francis, filled with enough self-importance, as he later says, to believe that his actions might influence others, stopped riding in cars or motor motorized vehicles, and he started walking. He said, I'm walking for the environment. But everyone was worried when they talked to him that he was really just trying to make them look bad. 
Californians knew about pollution in 1971, and John really thought that his actions could make a difference, that people would follow him. And so as he walked, John found himself in arguments with people. He argued so much, and maybe you know people like this, argumentative people. He, woke, he argued so much that he decided to give up talking for just one day. So he woke up and he was silent. At the breakfast table, he was silent. As he walked, he was silent. And he'd never been silent before. And in the silence, he began listening. He'd been an argumentative kid, but now at 27 years old, he spent the day in silence and realized that he had never really listened before. And so he decided to try it for one more day. He was learning. Listening let him learn. So he stayed quiet another day and then another day until one day he decided that he would stay quiet for the whole year until his 28th birthday. And then that one year turned into 17 years. He learned, he listened, he played the banjo, and he walked. He still wasn't riding in motorized vehicles. He wrote in a journal, and he read as many books on the environment as he could get his hands on. At one point, he decided he wanted to go to school. So he found a school in Oregon that taught about the environment, and he walked there from California. He showed up at the registrar's office, still silent. He'd figured out how to communicate with a combination of kind of made-up sign language and writing things down. He was still silent. He was not riding in cars. And they said, yes, we have a program for you. We can, we can make this work. So he graduated in two years with a bachelor's degree. And that summer, he wrote a letter to University of Montana. And he said, I'll be there in two years. And it took him those two years to walk to Missoula, Montana, where he enrolled in a master's degree, the University of Montana. When he graduated with his master's degree, his dad came to his graduation ceremony and asked him what he was going to do with this master's degree now and a pocket full of silence because he still hasn't said a word. And so John threw on his backpack and started walking, and he went to the University of Wisconsin. And this time, he worked on a PhD, working on a dissertation, and writing about oil spills. And no one in the country at the time was writing about oil spills. No one cared. No one was paying attention. And then there was Exxon Valdez. Even though he was still silent, John Francis became the leading voice in oil spills at the time. He was hired by the Coast Guard after completing his PhD, and he wrote our oil spill regulations in the United States. And in light of all of this, he was named a UN Goodwill Ambassador. Now, today, he jokes about all of this, saying, I, I really, I wouldn't have listened if someone had told me 17 years ago, hey, John, do you really want to make a difference? Get out of your car and start walking east. And after I walked off a little bit, they'd say to me, yeah, and shut up, too. But that's exactly what he did. He started walking east, and he closed his mouth, and he started listening. For John Francis, walking instead of driving in the car was self-control for the sake of the earth. And for John Francis, remaining silent was self-control for the sake of listening. This was self-control not for the sake of some personal gain, wealth or beauty or happiness, 
but self-control for the sake of others. Selfless self-control. Self-control is by no means easy. Odysseus, if you know this story, knew not to trust himself and tied himself to the mast as he sailed past the sirens. And who's ever had a swear jar and filled it with dollar bills, one dollar per profanity? Or do you have an accountability partner or a friend who you work out with because you know otherwise you're not going to go? As the proverb says, if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. Our phones, they they have these built-in accountability systems too. Have you set up a time limit on your social media usage? It's easy to become complacent or make excuses or just play give in to temptation. And while there are individual and communal aspects of each of the fruits of the Spirit, and each of us have our own areas where we need more individual self-control, social scientists say that the evolutionary value of human traits is that self-control is distinctly social. It's about all of us together, not each of us individually. Self-control helps primates as social beings get along with the rest of the group. And because they depend on one another for food that they need to survive, evolution favored those with self-control who could resist the urge to eat all the food immediately. So baked into our DNA is this kind of self-interested self-control, a survival of the fittest kind of self-control. But selfless self-control, I think, is at the heart of this facet of faithfulness, something a little bit different than just the evolutionary self-control that social scientists talk about. So self-control for the sake of others, not self-control for the sake of our own well-being. If you were to do one of those read the Bible in 365 days programs, you would find that day after day, someone is asking us, a prophet, God, Jesus, someone is urging us to care for the widow, the stranger, the orphan. They're almost always tied together. The widow, the stranger, the orphan. In order to care for the widow and the stranger and the orphan, you have to put someone else first. And that takes selfless self-control. And it takes even more than selfless self-control to care for the widow and the stranger and the orphan and the earth, I might add, in an era of complete lack of self-control. For example, here's where I, I see this. I knew we'd reached peak oil, this point at which there's less oil on earth to be drilled than there was when we began drilling. And I knew that we'd reached peak helium more than a decade ago. There's less helium now than when we first started collecting it. But I didn't know that it was possible to reach peak sand. We use sand to make glass, which I knew, and to make concrete, which makes sense. But... We also use it to make silicon chips for our electronic devices. And now, according to some reports, our global lack of self-control in using this largely abundant everywhere resource, sand, has caused violence because of the scarcity, such that there's a so-called sand mafia in India, organized crime that controls the construction industry's need for sand. Globally, we lack self-control. As a species, we think because we can design a way for us to have more, we should. More 
for us, though, means destruction of the creation God holds so dear. And probably it hurts the widow and the stranger and the orphan as well. For the sake of the earth, we lack self-control. Culturally, we lack paths to participate in communal, selfless self-control. So here's how I read this prophet Ezekiel today. Self-control is about leaving something for those who come after you. God asks the sheep, is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample on the rest of the pasture with your feet? And God asks the sheep, is it not enough for you to drink the clear water? Must you also muddy that water with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you've muddied? These are life or death questions for those, fee- those sheep who come after. Trampled pastures and muddied waters don't cut it. And it's preventable, God is saying. These are life and death questions of self-control in a world of indulgence. So often, the muddied waters, the trampled pastures, impact the least and the poor and the vulnerable more quickly than they impact the powerful and the wealthy and the fortunate. There's a reason why when we go on impact mission trips that we see kids scavenging in garbage piles in Guatemala, but not in the suburbs of Chicago. God's vision instead in Ezekiel is one of love and joy and peace, one of care, one of love. John Francis, after 17 years of remaining silent, spoke for the first time, not just one-on-one with somebody, but in front of a huge audience of people on Earth Day in 1990. And when he finally did open his mouth, he said that he realized that the way that we treat the Earth is directly synonymous with the way in which we treat our neighbor. In other words, we will walk gently through the pastures if we love our neighbor. We will use self-control and not trample the muddied waters, trample and muddy the waters if we are trying to care for the widow and the stranger and the orphan. And in turn, such gentleness, such self-control, for the sake of our neighbor, will impact how we care for the earth. Self-control is really hard. And it's even more difficult when we're talking about the kind of communal, shared vision for selfless self-control that can make an impact this world over. So I wonder if it's possible that St. Paul put self-control at the end of this list because he knew that we needed those other eight facets of faithfulness in order to really live in to self-control. That we would first need love, love for one another, because selfless self-control must be rooted in love for neighbor. That we need joy because selfless self-control is hard It might not always feel joyful, and so we would need to partner with joy for the way to be clear. And that we'd need peace as we sought self-control, because selfless self-control will upset the social order. And when people's place in this world feels threatened, even if it's for the sake of someone that they love, their neighbor, then peace will be imperative. We need love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and generosity, faithfulness and gentleness in order to live under all that is hard about that sacrificial, selfless self-control. 
I don't necessarily have any answers about how to move forward toward that deep love for neighbor rooted in selfless self-control. But I do know that through prayer and with God's help, there is a way forward nonetheless. May God be with us in all that is difficult and all that is beautiful and all that is life-changing and all that is possible with self-control. Let us pray. O God, through the lure of love, you conquer all in us that is out of control. And so we ask today, change our way of seeing and give us a path towards life. Move in us with those dual imperatives of urgency and peace and do not deny our own potential to live attuned to your spirit. Call to us, O God, as we call to you, as we sing your praise. Amen.